0: The Jewish views on the Labour Party Conference. Are they any closer to solving the ongoing issue with anti-Semitism? Sukkot seeking shelter, the Jewish Museum's new exhibition, which looks at the context of the Sukkah in 2017. And Louise Jacobs, we chat with the incoming and first female chair of UJIA, ahead of her assuming her new role.
1: But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news from the past week, I'm Tony Honigberg. Labour have overwhelmingly approved a rule changed in the party's constitution which will enable it to deal better and more swiftly with those who express bigotry, hatred and anti-Jewish views. However, the decision was overshadowed by its own controversies as various speakers at the party's annual conference denounced it as an attempt to stifle criticism of Israel. The campaign was initiated by the Jewish Labour movement and endorsed this year by both party leader Jeremy Corbyn and the National Executive Committee. And staying with the Labour Party, the change in rules comes at a time when General Secretary of Unite Union, Len McCluskey, has denied that Labour has a problem with anti-Semitism. Mr. McCluskey said that allegations of anti-Jewish sentiment within the party was mood music, created by those who wanted to remove Jeremy Corbyn as leader. However, he was challenged by Shadow Cabinet member Baroness Chakrabarti, who carried out an investigation into anti-Semitism in Labour, who said she has seen things which Len hasn't. A 32-year-old man hurled anti-Semitic abuse as Jews made their way to synagogue for morning prayer and threatened, we will wipe you out. Glenn Okafor confronted members of the Stanford Hill community observing Shabbat at around 9.15am on the 4th of March. He was found guilty by two counts of racially or religiously aggravated harassment and two counts of using threatening abusive behavior to cause alarm or distress. Britain's Jewish community representatives have condemned Palestinian incitement following the murder of a border police officer and two security guards at the entrance to a Jewish settlement near Jerusalem. The attack took place as Palestinian workers with permits were being let into the settlement to work. The guards are believed to have become suspicious before 37-year-old Nima Mahmoud Ahmed Jamal took a gun out from under his shirt and began shooting. He was shot and killed at the scene. And finally, two letters by Nobel peace-winning physicist Albert Einstein are to be auctioned this week in Los Angeles. The later letter, written in 1950, sees Einstein turn to the subject of God, saying there is one thing that i have learned in the course of a long life it is devilishly difficult to get closer to him if one does not want to remain on the surface both letters were written to his best friend michelle besso a swiss italian engineer and now command a minimum bid of sixty thousand dollars i hope that includes postage
2: that's the news now here's andrew sherwood with a look at the sport thank you tony Brighton striker Tomer Hemed has enjoyed a week of highs and lows, having scored the winner in their 1-0 win over Newcastle, before being handed a three-match ban for stamping on De'Andre Yedlin. The Israeli said, I accept the decision against me but do not agree with it, and I am devastated to miss three matches. Staying with Israeli footballers, Ofer Marciano has been allowed to miss Hibernian's Scottish Premier League clash against Celtic this weekend due to it taking place on Yom Kippur. The goalkeeper asked his manager Neil Lennon for his permission to miss the match, which was granted. Lennon said, it's just one of those things, you have to respect a player's faith, that's more important than football. And finally, Stuart Lustigman has been recognised by the Football Association for his 50 years of service to football. Having played his first match in the AJY Junior League in 1959, he also founded both the Maccabi GB Junior Football League in 1988 and Masters League in 1999. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at jewishnews.co.uk Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Hello there and
0: welcome to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave and let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is news editor Justin Cohen and online editor Jack Mendel. Welcome to you both. Now, it probably comes as no surprise that on the front page we are looking at the Labour Party conference and a headline that reads, clean it up or don't come back.
3: Yes, this really was a tale of two conferences, I would say. On the positive side, and let's start with that, because I have to say, the, the as you would expect, the national coverage has rightly been dominated by the negatives this week. On the positive side, the rule change that the Jewish Labour movement first proposed about a year ago at the last party conference and have been lobbying very hard for has now passed. And overwhelmingly so, it must be said. Uh, Overwhelmingly so. More than 90% of Labour delegates uh, supported it. Most of the union votes supported it. Jeremy Corbyn supported it himself. And so that's now passed. So the hope will be that finally the Labour Party have all the tools that they could possibly want to make sure that when examples of antisemitism or indeed any other form of racism, and this rule change does mention Islamophobia and other forms of, of racism and discrimination, that they are able to more swiftly and more efficiently deal appropriately with these cases. And obviously there are famous cases, particularly that of Ken Livingston and Jackie Walker, that are still outstanding. They still remain suspended. So we will see what happens in those cases.
0: Well, I mean that is obviously good news, and we are pleased to hear that, and we'll obviously find out a little more about that with Jeremy Newmark from the Jewish Labour Movement a little later on. But unfortunately, it was kind of marred with bad news as well.
3: Yeah, there was there was more than the fair share of, of bad news at this at this party conference, and it has dominated the headlines. It all really started on on Monday evening with a fringe reception organized by the Free Speech on Israel group, and comments, for example, that took place there with various speakers, calls for the expulsion of the Jewish Labour movement and Labour Friends of Israel, a suggestion from one speaker that questioning the Holocaust should be a topic that's up for discussion, and various other comments, comparisons between supporters of Israel and the Nazis. It was pretty shocking stuff. And that was followed by really a toxic atmosphere, even when the rule change was debated and, and accusations against the JLM and collusion with the NEC and and, and and accusations of the NEC putting pressure on anti-Israel activists and so on so it really was a situation where a number of Jewish Labour activists were feeling very uncomfortable, even on the main conference floor, to the extent I think some people decided to stay away.
0: And to top it all off, of course, we had the leader of the Unite Union, Len McCluskey, turning around and saying that claims of anti-Semitism were just an attempt to undermine Jeremy Corbyn. So it does seem quite an extraordinary and uh, turbulent week for the Labour Party.
3: As, as if it wasn't bad enough that we had calls for the expulsion of those two groups on the fringes of the conference, you had senior figures uh, associated with the Labour Party, the Labour movement. Len McCluskey, you've, you've mentioned Ken Loach. I'm not sure if he's a party member or not, but he he certainly also reflected those kind of sentiments that uh, he hadn't seen examples of anti-Semitism before. Obviously, Ken Livingstone then jumped on the bandwagon. Was was was. Taking the airways once again to, to give his own perspective, and we know what that perspective is on the anti-Semitism scandal. What we didn't hear, though, this week was was Jeremy Corbyn himself addressing those comments from some of his supporters. You had his main union backer, Len McCluskey, saying this kind of thing. And given the fact that Jeremy Corbyn launched the Chakrabarti report, given the fact that he has you know overseen the suspension of many many activists, he really ought to have been able to say and to come out publicly and strongly and said, McCluskey is wrong. Instead, rather interestingly, that position was taken by Shami Chakrabarti, who, of course, her own report into anti-Semitism in the party was much maligned. But she went on Newsnight this week and was very clear that McCluskey ought to have a look at her own report and that he, he was wrong in his position.
0: Okay, well, there is much to talk about this and still more to come on this very programme, as I say, when we speak to Jeremy Newmark from the Jewish Labour movement. But let's have a look at some of the other stories making the paper this week. And protester jailed for terror offences. This is the chap who some people may remember held up the sign that said Hitler was right.
4: Yes, Hussein Yusuf, who in 2014, during Israel's war with Gaza, became the face of hate after he carried a sign through central London that says, Hitler, you were right. He's now been jailed for six and a half years for terror-related offences, not specifically related to the sign that he held up, for sharing material online relating to ISIS. And the CST have come out and they've kind of drawn attention to this as a textbook case of how anti-Semitic attitudes can somehow be linked or can represent more extremist views. So it is good that this individual has been pursued and he's been jailed, and hopefully there'll be more like that.
0: Or with a little bit of luck that he has been made an example of now. Naturally, we would want to talk about some of these stories a bit more, but unfortunately time is slightly against us. So Let's look at another one. Israel Conference is back.
3: Yes, this has now become an annual fixture in the calendar. This is Jewish News' work with BICOM, to put on an annual conference on UK-Israel relations in Westminster. This is something we'll be doing again actually on the 100th anniversary itself of the Balfour Declaration in November. One of Uh, a number of events marking it, I understand. That's right. there's There's a full calendar of events. About 160 events, in fact, around the country have now been put in place. But I think this will be perhaps one of the most high profile, I'm delighted to say. We're also working with the Balfour 100 Committee on this event and we've started to put together the programme. We've already got figures like Sir Malcolm Rifkin, the former Foreign Secretary. We've got Shadow Foreign Secretary Emily Thornbury, and we're still looking forward to announcing in the coming weeks who our keynote British government speaker will be.
0: Oh, we look forward to hearing exactly who that will be. Now, not only is Israel Conference back, but The Apprentice is back as well. And I believe there are a couple of Jewish contestants in the midst. This seems to be a bit of a common theme with reality shows.
4: Yes, we have a Jewish baker in The Bake Off and now we have two Jewish contestants in The Apprentice who are seeking to be Lord Sugar's business partner. And this week we spoke to them. They are Elliot Van Emden, who's 31 and he's from Stanmore.
0: And may I say what a great place that is to be from.
4: <laughs> and we have Charles Burns, he's 24 and he is from Manchester. And they have tried to big themselves up a bit. They're up against 16 other people. And uh, Van Emden told us that his business plan is going to blow the other candidates out of the water. And Charles Burns says that he has a revolutionary business idea. So I think we'll all be tuning in week on week to hear what these ideas are.
0: Now, I'm not the biggest follower of The Apprentice, but my understanding is that the rules have changed ever so slightly. So no longer are these people fighting to become Lord Sugar's next apprentice, as it were, but more looking to get investment from it. It's turned a bit Dragon's Den-ish that's right for the last few years
3: i think lord sugar has introduced a system whereby each of the contestants will start the process with a business plan those that reach the final stages will have an opportunity to present that plan to be cross-questioned about it and the winner will then get an investment from him into their new company and over the last few years i believe he's donated in excess of one and a half million pounds to businesses to help ensure their success
0: Excellent. Well, maybe we can pitch the Jewish views to him next year. Who knows? Thank you both very much indeed. That's all the time we've got for for a look at the paper for this week. But Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. Well, as you've been hearing, the Labour Party conference has been and gone for another year. The question, of course, for Jews up and down the country is: Have they achieved anything in the battle against anti-Semitism? Well, we know that they have changed the constitution to make it easier to expel perpetrators of anti-Jewish comments as well as expressions of bigotry and hatred. But joining me on the line now to discuss this further is Chair of the Jewish Labour Movement, Jeremy Newmark. Jeremy, let's start, I guess, with this change of rules. I assume that because you're the one who led it, you must be very encouraged by this.
5: Yeah, look, this is a decisive political victory. We achieved 96% of the vote across all sections of the conference, the party membership, the trade unions and the affiliated bodies, which is quite unprecedented. And what this does is it now brings the Labour Party, the party of equality, the party founded and rooted in anti-racist values to the place in which it should always have been. It creates a set of tools for the leaders of our party to be able to effectively deal with those individual members who are promoting anti-Semitic discourse in our political life. Of course, this is only one part of the equation. The other part of the equation is these rules actually need to be implemented and used firmly and effectively and we will of course be uh, monitoring their implementation over the weeks and months ahead to ensure that does happen. Well I'm pleased you said that because that of course
0: is the main thing now is that now that those changes have been implemented what happens next? So of course that I guess that we can't overlook that however much that was good news to come out of the party conference, there was unfortunately some distasteful news as well. There was, of course, a couple of incidents that overshadowed it. First and foremost, the fringe event that was held by Free Speech on Israel, where Michael Kalmanovitz of the International Jewish Anti-Zionist Network actually called for your organisation and the Labour Friends of Israel to be booted out the party. Somehow this just doesn't seem to fall in line with the ethos of the Labour Party.
5: Well, well let's be clear and um, first of all this was a fringe event and I think mean, the clue is in the name it didn't happen within the, the the confines of the party conference itself or on the conference floor. However, it, it's incredibly distasteful, it's utterly unacceptable behaviour. This is a thinly veiled call to have an old style purge of Jewish members from the party. We did during the course of party conference make uh, representations at a meeting of the conference arrangements committee that has ultimate responsibility for for everything that happened. They did release a statement on on the last morning of conference making it very clear that this sort of behaviour is unacceptable. Now, we don't know if the individual concerned is even a member of the Labour Party, but if he is, we think this will provide a very serious test case for the new rules.
0: Certainly will. Well, also, potentially another case that might provide an interesting test, shall we call it, was of course when General Secretary of the Unite Union, Len McCluskey, he's basically said that the anti Semitism claims are created to undermine Jeremy Corbyn. Have you had any dealings with Len? And if so, have you sort of been able to maybe point him in a better direction? Because it seems like quite an extraordinary claim to make.
5: Well, we've, of course, met with senior figures, some very senior figures in the Unite Union, and I don't think that his perspective on this is representative of even the broader leadership of of Unite. I think this is an issue on which Len McCluskey has a a bit of a political blind spot. I was very heartened to see that on the same day that he he made those comments, Shadow Attorney General Shami Chakrabarti went on to BBC Newsnight and and was very clear that on this particular issue, Len is speaking in in ignorance. He hasn't seen the evidence that uh, she has seen, and he needs to reconsider his position. I think that's quite a courageous thing to do. If you know the vast amount of power wielded by Unite in in the Labour Party to actually take on Len McCluskey, even if you are the Shadow Attorney General, it's quite a bold and courageous thing to do. So we we were heartened to hear uh, Shami Chakravarti's remarks on that. Okay, well,
0: let's look at the former mayor of London, Ken Livingston, because unfortunately he's also claimed that some of the Labour colleagues of yours are actually distorting the scale of the problems of anti-Semitism. So based on what you've just said that Shami Chakrabarti herself has actually said and obviously found in her report, could this be where part of the problem for the Labour Party lies is that so many key figures just seem to adopt what can only be described as an
5: ostrich attitude? Well, you know, Ken was obviously historically a key figure in the Labour Party. I don't think that he is a key figure in the Labour Party anymore. He's currently serving a two-year suspension for his distortion of the history of the Holocaust. And he is also already, <laughs> even prior to these latest remarks, facing a second investigation for his behaviour immediately after his suspension w- was announced, where he gave a press conference, effectively doubling down on his position and showing no contrition at all. So, you know, I think that the people like Ken are, are, are perhaps too slowly, but at least being driven out of the mainstream political political psyche of the party. These are isolated figures. I think we have as a Jewish community, many, many friends in the Labour Party who have sort of heroically been at the vanguard of speaking out against anti-Semitism, not just the uh, the Jewish MPs like Luciana Berger, Ivan Lewis, Ruth Smith, who have spoken out often at great detriment to t- and risk to themselves against this problem. But I'm thinking about figures like Lisa Nandy, like Clive Lewis, like the chair of Labour Friends of Israel, Joan Ryan, Ian Austin, the deputy leader of the party, Tom Watson, and many others and i think you know the message there is whilst there may be some problematic figures we still do have as a community plenty of friends in the labour party plenty of people who are willing to stand up and despite the calls for our our purging or banning of or expulsion we're clearly going nowhere We'll, we'll stay and we'll stand and we'll fight this The mere fact, though, that these individuals associate
0: themselves with the Labour Party surely in itself has got to be cause for concern. I know that you say that they are isolated individuals, but they are all the same affiliated with the party and surely that's got to be something that causes not just the community at large concern but you yourself as head of Jewish Labour movement concern.
5: Well of course it causes concern and of course it's something that we speak out against and and we fight on a regular basis but these problems are are by no means limited to the Labour Party right now and and quite appropriately the focus is on the Labour Party but only a couple of years ago we were talking about the Tory ministers like Aidan Burley dressing up in an SS Nazi uniform Stagnate. We've had figures like Jenny Tong and uh, others in the the Liberal Democrat Party again revising the history of the Holocaust and occupying incredibly difficult political territory. Uh, UKIP has has it had its problems. You know, this is a, an issue that exists across British politics, across European politics. If you look at the election results in Germany over the past few days, so no political party is immune from it. And and you know, the best way to tackle this is for activists inside those parties themselves to engage and to fight back but it, it exists everywhere
0: well fight back they are because councillor warren morgan of course of brighton and hove council has now said that he is threatened to actually stop the party conference from being held in brighton in future unless labour gets a grip on anti-semitism do you think he's right to make such threats
5: Look, Warren is one of our uh, our great supporters, and we were in touch with him throughout the course of of party conference. And in fact, the local authority in Brighton does have a very strong zero tolerance policy for any form of discrimination, homophobia, sexism, transphobia, anti-Semitism, whatever it is. And indeed, you know, the Labour Party could perhaps take lessons from their own Labour-led local authority in Brighton that when they say zero tolerance, when they had warned the party prior to the conference that there would be a zero tolerance policy, they shouldn't really be surprised to get a reaction of this nature. I would like to see other local authorities around the country in areas that host political party conferences of all shades. I'm thinking about Manchester, Liverpool, and so on and so forth, take a very similar attitude Just in terms of Labour, but let all of the political parties know that when they come and hold their annual events, they must not be in a position where as political parties, they're importing hatred, racism and anti-Semitism into parts of our country whose local authorities have quite rightly taken stands against it. Just lastly, because unfortunately we are flat
0: out of time, it's not all doom and gloom. The JLM have, of course, won the Del Singh Award for Best Practice to affiliated and member-led organisations. That must have come as a very welcome accolade, I suppose, at this time of, well, can we only describe it as strife?
5: Well, I think it's a reflection of the immense dedication energy and activism of our membership base, which in the past year has grown to uh, to, to well over 2,000 now, a membership base that largely comprises of people under the age of 26, which bodes well for the future. And yes, of course, this recognition is uh, is, is wonderful. But at the same time, we have to continue to uh, fight the fight. And we will certainly do that. Well, Jeremy
0: Newmark, thank you very much indeed on behalf of the whole community for fighting the good fight for us. And here's hoping that maybe one day we will see the changes that your organization and, of course, the whole community are desperately hoping for. Thank you very much indeed. You're listening to The Jewish Views, in association with The Jewish News. And still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Tony will be joined by founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Karbritz, and founder of West End Travel, David Siegel. And they'll be discussing Yom Kippur. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to Louise Jacobs, the incoming chair of UJIA, ahead of her assuming her new position, as well as being the organization's first female to take the role as well. But first, Sukkot is nearly upon us once more, as obviously it is always part of the High Holy Days, and the Jewish Museum in Camden has been marking this with a new exhibition. It's called Sukkot Seeking Shelter, and our very own arts editor Kate Fulton has gone along to find out more for us. Kate.
6: That's right, Phil. I'm at the Jewish Museum London, and I'm here with Abby and Rhiannon. And I'm sitting in, if you can believe it, a sukkah. And it's not not your normal kind of sukkah. It's sort of made from cardboard and it's got, looks like pieces of bam, big thick bamboo, but it's not. It's cardboard, like tall
7: rolls going all around the walls. What's it all about, Abby? We've built this sukkah to kind of think about the modern implications of the Festival of Sukkot, so the ideas of shelter that it kind of brings up and these cardboard tubes that the sucker is built out of actually used by a japanese architect to build small shelters of structures for people who've been displaced by natural disasters or by war and he creates kind of small homes for them so we're we've used them to kind of reflect reflect that it was designed by Alan Farley and Tom Piper, who um, Tom Piper was the man behind the poppies at Tower of London. So it's been really great and they worked with us on our blood exhibition here a couple of years ago. So it's great to work with them again and to be able to think about ideas of shelter in a kind of wider sense at this time.
6: Because when you think of Sukkot, it's sort of a travelling festival. We tend to think of ingathering and harvest and the peripatetic wanderings of our people and you are supposed to see the stars through it. It's supposed to be something and it does feel quite outdoorsy here. You've got green type of carpet to look like grass and I can see the twinkling of the stars above. How do you think people will
8: relate to it? How are you hoping that people will relate to, to this sukkah? We have a series of questions around the walls to spark off dialogue and get people thinking about the ideas of shelter the ideas of home so we've got what do you need to feel at home when i look at the stars i think of the time i felt most afraid was and then what we want to happen eventually is that people be drawing and writing their responses all over the sucker walls so by the end it will be this really interactive participatory space where people have. Shared their their thoughts and feelings with us. Because it does feel
6: like a like an installation almost, but it's got a, a deep meaning of of what home is all
8: about. Yeah. And in terms of the event program around that, we really want to spark dialogue around the current plight of refugees, and we're drawing the strong parallels with what's happened to the Jews in the Holocaust and centuries before that as well. So, tell us a bit about yeah. those events. Who's coming and and what's on? Yeah. Two events really exemplify that. We've got Sukkot, the Seeking Shelter Late. So that's where we're working in partnership with CounterPoints Arts, who run Refugee Week, and Camden Council as well. So we're welcoming in different community groups from Camden and also... Refugees, we're working with different artists who'll be coming in and creating work in the space. We're gonna have talks, performances, all kinds of things happening across the museum, all related to the theme of refugees and migration. And hopefully people will be sharing their stories as refugees, whether that's through kind of performance or talks. So it's not
6: necessarily just about the Festival of Sukkot, it's about the broader, what it means.
8: Yeah, so we've taken the kind of theme of Sukkot and the idea of shelter, and then expanded that out to obviously the current crisis you know where there are 65 million people who are currently displaced around the world. So There's not just going to be
6: Jewish people who will be coming to this exhibition?
8: No absolutely it's about so there is going to be the absolute aspect where we're talking about the festival Sakat, we've got Maureen Kendler, brilliant broadcaster coming in and she's going to be talking about the stories behind Sukkot, really getting into the festival so we will be looking at that kind of religious aspect to it but also broadening it out to be able to talk about refugees and what's happening to them now. And it's
6: for both adults and kids. Tell us yeah. a, few, a few other things that are going on for, for both of
7: them. We have regular storytelling for under fives in the sukkah itself. So those early morning sessions, 9.30 to 10, twice a week, on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. So you can just bring your kids, come in for free, enjoy stories. And those stories will be on kind of themes of journeys and Sukkot as well, which will be really lovely. There's a Sukkot Family Day coming up on the 8th of October. So we'll be exploring the festival a bit through arts and crafts, and again, storytelling. I think there's plans to make edible suckers, <laughs> So I don't know how that's um, going to work, but I've, that's what I've heard rumours of.
8: So there'll be a lot of fun, interactive stuff for kids to do as well. And, and more of the, the other talks. We're going to have adult storytelling and that's in partnership with Nisa Nashim who are a Jewish-Muslim interfaith women's organisation. So we've got Rachel Rose-Reed and Jamana Moon who will be telling kind of women's stories from those different traditions especially around journeys that'll be a brilliant evening where we're kind of bringing together different groups of people we also have Nikos Schulkler who's the editor of The Good Immigrant and he's going to be in conversation with Barbara Roche who is the chair of the Migration Museum project so that should be a brilliant evening where we're kind of getting into really stories of migration and what it is like to be an immigrant coming over to Britain and and the experiences of those people.
6: And going back to the setting it up, how do you explain Sukkot to people. I mean, clearly, this this is a fabulous representation of a sukkah. But clearly, the people, the artists, are not themselves Jewish. How
7: did they kind of get it? Who 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 told them all about it? The artists worked closely with our head of exhibitions, Joanne Rosenthal, who um, gave them a little bit more of an idea of what Sukkot is and what sukkahs look like around the world. There's a little kind of display of images of different sukkahs from all over the world, built on boats, built on people's balconies, all sorts on the wall of the exhibition. And those sorts of images were also given to the designers, just give them a bit of an idea of what the structures normally look like and what they're used for. So this idea of community, people really gathering in the space and it being a really usable space as well. But it's
6: also a very temporary space. I mean, are you finding that I mean, that is one of the things on, on Sukkot, we're, we're recognising that we are, we're we sort of getting much more as one with nature and we're feeling less the great I am in our great big brick houses, but more we are here but for the grace of God, all of us. So there's a sort of temporary aspect to it. Have you noticed that in, in feedback and people who have been so far?
8: Something we are trying to do that's new, that's sparked by this exhibition is we're looking at emotional evaluation, so we're going to have little cards out where people can say whether it made them feel happy, sad, angry, surprised, compassionate, a different kind of all different range of emotions. So it feels like you want people to really go into what what temporary
6: living means?
7: Exactly that, yeah. And I think it's exactly what you're saying about it being a time for us to Kind of think a bit more about the way that we live and how I mean I guess lucky we most of us are to have you know homes and and to be in a kind of comfortable safe surrounding and Sukkot and you know every Sukkot that's built is a kind of is a, a way to reconnect with nature but also just this idea of I guess kind of the temporary temporary nature of, of life and of everything that we have. That's something we're really looking into with these questions that we're asking people in the events that we're running to try and have that that thought be carried through every visitor, the sort of things that we might think about throughout Sokot.
6: And Rihanna, if you want to get tickets to the events, how does it work
8: practically? Can anyone come? Yeah, so everyone's welcome. The, the Nisa Nashim event, that's for people who identify as women, but yeah, everyone's welcome to, to the events. All the events are on our website, so you can just go to jewishmuseum.org.uk or you can call us up or email us as well. So all the details are mainly on the website and we have an event leaflet here you can pick up. And how long
7: is the exhibition running? It runs until the 3rd of December, so Sukkot's running a bit longer in the Jewish Museum than everywhere else. But we hope it will give people a long time to kind of come and explore and have a think about the subjects we're trying to raise.
0: I think that sounds jolly good fun to me. I'm just going to get the chance to go and have a look at it before long. That was Rhiannon Jones and Abby Stacey from the Jewish Museum talking to our arts editor Kate Fulton there about Sukkot Seeking Shelter, which is their new exhibition in time for the festival. If you would like more information, then go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you will find a link to all the information you need. Coming up in just a moment will be this week's Schmooze. And just a reminder that we live stream our Schmooze every Thursday evening from 7 p.m. British summertime. If you would like to comment along and join in the discussion, then just head over to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash the Jewish Views. And as we get your comments, we'll try and read them out on the program as well. Don't forget, you can also go to Twitter at Jewish Views UK, or if you prefer good old fashioned emails, it's studio at Jewish Views dot, co dot UK. now i'm sure that we are all very aware with the amazing work that the ujia do in a bid to try and help the younger jews out there connect not only with their religion but their heritage as well but you might be surprised to learn that the organization has just announced their first woman chair to take up the role well diana toman our community editor has gone along to find out more and to meet the great lady herself diana
9: Yes, Phil, as you say, I'm joined by Louise Jacobs in the offices of the UJIA. Louise will be the first woman to be chair of this organisation when she takes up her post on the 1st of January next year. Louise, you're no stranger to the role of a woman in high position, are you? You held that post, I seem to remember, at the London Jewish Cultural Centre.
10: I did indeed. I was chief executive of the London Jewish Cultural Centre for four years until it merged with JW3. And since then, I have been a trustee at Jujia and have recently been appointed as chair.
9: Now, of course, the UGIA is a much bigger organisation. What do you see as your opportunities and indeed your challenges at the UGIA once you join next year?
10: UGIA is, a, as you say, a really very large organisation. And... What is important here is to make sure that we keep being relevant and we keep being important. And by relevant, I mean is how do we continue to connect the next generation to Israel? How do we ensure that they have a commitment, a connection, to Israel and inspiring Israel and an Israel of today. So I'll be working with the organization and the professionals and the other trustees to think how we can ensure that the next generation have that commitment, that connection and how they can feel inspired by Israel, how they can talk knowledgeably about Israel and how that Israel can be an important
9: part of their Jewish identity. And how do you think that will happen in the future?
10: As I said, we are a big organisation, we need to continually change and be relevant. We need to look at our programmes, we need to think very carefully about what we're doing and we need to adapt and change them. It's a bit early to say now exactly how we do that, but I think there will be some changes and we will explain to the community and our stakeholders and the young people as we go along what we intend to do and we'll get their feedback and we will continue to make sure that we remain important part of the community.
9: That's a very wide canvas you're talking about. Is there anything special dear to your heart in all of that?
10: I suppose dear to my heart is I am very committed to make sure that the young people here have an opportunity to go to Israel because I don't feel that you get a you get a feel for Israel until you are there, which is why we will continue to invest heavily in our Gap Year program, our experiences with Israel, our 16 plus Israel tour programs and birthright and so we will continue to think about how we can send young people to israel so that they can see israel not just necessarily from the beaches of tel avivs and the restaurants of tel avivs but so they can see the inspiring Israel in the Galil, where we have invested a lot of money, where we have invested in infrastructure, where they can meet different communities, marginalized communities, and that they can really see Israel as it is today, and not necessarily the Israel that
9: our parents saw, or that we saw,
10: but an Israel that is important and relevant to them.
9: By that, uh, you, you imply that there has been quite a change in the last few
10: generations
9: then, Oh, I
10: think there has been a change. I think there's been a huge generational shift in the way that young people look at Israel. When we were growing up and when my parents were younger, there was a feeling that Israel was, we were building a state. Now Israel is a state. Israel will be 70 years old next year. Having said that, we need to find new ways to make sure that our children and our children's children have that connection and and feel that there is something in Israel for them and it is part of their Jewish identity.
9: You, of course, have got young people in your own family, just about that sort of age, haven't you?
10: I have indeed. I've got three children, not so young anymore, 25, 22 and 19. They've all been on Israel tour. And when we go to Israel and we take family holidays there, I do my best to show them other things outside of the nightclubs and the beaches. That must be quite a tough job, actually. Oh, it is. But I think they they realise now. And actually, when they come back, after I drag them out of bed in the mornings, but when they come back in the evening, I think they feel they've had a day that has changed their perceptions a little bit. And that's what it's all about.
9: I have a feeling they must be very proud of you, particularly now that you've landed this fantastic post.
10: They are. Actually, surprisingly, they are. And next year, I intend to bring them to the dinner and to other UGI events. And I want them to feel the same as I feel because, I mean, I grew up in a family where Israel was important, Zionism was important, philanthropy was important. And I think it's important to instill those values and those traditions down to your
0: own children. Uh, muzzles off to Louise Jacobs there talking to community editor Diana Toman about becoming the first woman to assume the role as chair of the UJIA.
11: You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that, ordinarily, you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. Joining Tony Honigberg and me today are founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carbretz and founder of West End Travel, David Siegel. But the subject for this edition is quite simply Yom Kippur. The question is... What does it mean to us and how does it make us feel both before and after? So, Judy, let's start with you. You've openly admitted you're not the most religious of Jews. <laughs> no, I'm so not. So, how do you observe Yom Kippur, is if at all?
12: What I do, I've got, well, it's not a case of admitting, but I do fast. And not only do I fast every year without drinking anything at all, It confuses me because I don't do a lot else, but I I fast religiously every year.
11: So you actually sit at home and fast. You don't eat or drink anything. Correct. I've mentioned this before. I have a sister like that, and I can't quite understand why she bothers to do it. And I can't quite understand why you bother to do it.
12: Nor do I. That's the whole problem. If someone out there on Facebook can help me, tell me why I do it. It's not... To just to something inwards,
1: inwardly would lead to... to uh, tradition. I've tradition. always done it. My parents And if you didn't did do it, it, would you feel guilty?
12: For me, it, it would, would be wrong, wrong any so. more than eating ham or pork mm. or anything like or shellfish. I couldn't do no. it. There's vestiges. It's, tra- it's,
1: it's
13: tradition and guilt feeling, I think. It's guilt. A lot of it's
11: pure, utter yeah. guilt.
13: David, <laughs> I of course, you're, you're the opposite. You're... Correct. I'm on the other side of the pendulum. I swing the other way and my. Been brought up all I think my you should life. be careful when you say that, David. You? <laughs> <Jesus. laughs> right. Yeah, you're right. I'll, I'll rephrase that. I've been brought up in a traditionally Jewish home all my life, and we run a Jewish traditional home. I go to an Orthodox shul. We keep Shabbat, and and we are modern, described as modern Orthodox. So for me, Yom Kippur is a special day. It's a, a day which probably gives me more fright to do anything wrong than any other day. I wouldn't dare do anything on Yom Kippur that possibly one might do, and I'm saying one, not me, on another day. Yom Kippur has an enormous amount of impact. I don't lose sight of the fact, from the moment Kol Nidre starts for 25 hours, I don't lose sight of the fact that it's Yom Kippur. I try and do everything right. I'm not holier than the the next guy, but I just think Yom Kippur has a very special meaning, a spiritual meaning, more so than any other day. And, And everything I do, in my busy life, comes to a halt on Erev Yom Kippur when I'm out of my office probably at half past four and that's it and nothing happens until about 7.30 the following night. Fasting is is relatively easy, Judy. It's actually quite healthy. Yes, um, but
12: the drinking isn't particularly good.
13: There was a guy who called my office last year, I'll tell you this very briefly, and and he booked a flight on Yom Kippur. And he also bought kosher food. I found the two (laughs) (coughs) and I found it somewhat incongruous. So I thought, should I tell him? Should I not tell him? Anyway, I decided perhaps I shouldn't mind my own business, but I did phone him and said, look, I hope you don't mind me saying perhaps you've got your date wrong, but you are flying from New York to London on Colnudre night. And I noticed, you know, I just thought I'll mention it in case. And I hardly finished the sentence. He says, I'm not Jewish. Oh, I said, well, why are you ordering kosher food? Oh, he says it's far superior to anything else. <laughs> <laughs> it just goes to show you have to be it's, so careful. Can, be...
11: can we just go back to, to what you said about how you feel on the day? I feel much the same as you, but do you spend the whole time in synagogue or not? Pretty because much. The reason why I ask you that is because... The reason why there's a fast is not because you're supposed to be fasting, but because you don't have time to eat because you should be praying all the time. And there's a big difference.
13: I'm in shul pretty much all day. We have a break at about two o'clock till about half past four five, and then I'm back again. Ah. But essentially, I'm in shul all day. So
11: you're not like me in that I never stay for the Minha service because I find the Minha service extremely irritating.
13: I wouldn't use the word irritating. I, I generally it's give long. it a, a friendly miss. I, I, I think that part of the
1: service is actually... You're probably at your, your lowest and your weakest in the day at that part of the service. And, and it, concentration, lack of concentration... No, it's not just that. It's
11: also because it's all about sacrifice and it's...
13: But let me ask you this, Clive. Why is a show like, say, Upper Berkeley Street, Marble Arts and the mm-hmm. packed to the last seat on Colony night? not necessarily even on Yom Kippur, but for Kol Nidre night, it mm. is so special that everybody is there regardless of their level.
11: But isn't that true of every synagogue, whatever their?
1: Kol Nidre is always packed. Kol Nidre rooms. is
11: totally why? packed. Why? So let me ask you, why? I don't know why.
1: I think it's left over from the jazz singer. When I they saw sing it on oh, last night no, when he sings. It,
11: seriously, I think it's because... No, it's, it's, a, it's a just special. It's that already mentioned. Yeah. Because she fasts, yeah. there is this tremendous we've all been brought up with it all our lives, there's this tremendous, if you like, guilt hmm. that conundry is the most important evening in, yes. the, in the year.
2: Yeah.
12: I don't know, it's just yeah, something I do and yet I'm very logical and the logic tells me that God, and I personally do believe in God, isn't going to be going to all the shores, listening to people, praying. I mean, he's got other things to do. I was at well, a French estate, th- and the husband was dovening quietly, and he does that every day.
1: Mm-hmm. And it's how uh, it's how you are yes. inwardly. I think it's yes. not not you're not trying to prove this to anybody else. No, you're, it's I never just knew inwardly. You, I, you prove it to yourself. Yeah, yeah, I, I believe.
11: I believe. I I was extremely fortunate in that I had a, a rabbi grandfather whom I adored and. I was his favourite grandchild. Oh. And Naturally. He gave me such a love of, mm. of the Jewish religion, which is beyond anything. And I, I'm so grateful that he did that because in a way I fear Yom Kippur and Khaled Rebelli equally. I feel something very special mm. about it. I do as well. And, and, I, and think, I
13: think most people do. Can I just bring it back to another religion? Why is Christmas so more dominant in the Christian life than any other day of the year, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, even though they have Christmas lunch, which is a big thing. But that aside, Christmas is far more important than any other ho- holiday. And Eid for the Muslims mm. is probably their big one or at the end of Ramadan. And and that is the big number. So is there a difference in parallel between Ayyam Kippur and their Christmas Day? Oh, I don't
12: or- think so.
13: You'd I know when I was
12: a little girl and I got Hanukkah presents, I'd always save them till Christmas because that was—it was Christmas.
13: But what did Christmas do for you?
12: Oh, the family got together and there was lovely food and t- programs on television, and I got knew, presents.
11: I knew, I knew, I knew a very, very, very religious—well, obviously it would be—Jew who was a rabbi who always had turkey on Christmas Day. I mean, it's just that's become a sort of habit. I mean, I, I think you will find that most most Jews celebrate Christmas Day in one way or another as a, as a holiday.
13: They like Christmas Day. It's it's it, I like it actually, and I sit there listening to the Christmas Carol concert, and I oh, yeah. I I enjoy Christmas. Thoroughly. But I know from the experience of all people in my office, they plan their Christmas lunch from January for 10 or 11 months, and by the time they get to the Christmas puds, they're all at each other's throats. That's right. I've got a comment from, from Ben who
1: says, it's a day of consciousness and reflection, whether you are religious or not. I know many Jews who spend the time in nature rather than synagogue, as a way of being mindful of their place in the world. Does it really matter if God hears your prayers
13: or that you feel and believe them?
11: I think that's really very beautiful. Interesting.
13: Thanks, Ben. Yes. But Yom Kippur means so much, and look, and Rosh Hashanah to that extent that everybody wants to shake her hand. Nobody comes to sh- my office to shake my hand at Pesach mm. and say all the very best, have a happy Pesach, have That's a happy Shavuot. Absolutely. But come this afternoon, one of my chaps in the office, who who's not in tomorrow, he stood for five minutes whilst I finished my phone call to shake my hand. Yeah, all the best, that, uh, all the best for the big, the black fast. Whereas Tisha B'av is infinitely longer than Yom Kippur anyway. In terms of fasting, yeah. Yeah, but Yom Kippur
11: uh, is also the, the day on which God Almighty says says quite simply, if you pray for penance, I will forgive you. And it's you're given this wonderful chance every year To To, to
13: clean up, to clean, to, clean
11: yes, yes, yes Clean
1: up and start again.
13: Yeah, yes. I agree. And and some of the prayers are pretty frightening. And, and I think if maybe you read the why, English.
1: Maybe that's why it's so spiritual and so so important to almost almost every Jew.
11: And also because yeah. you also on that day, the Almighty makes for his final decision about whether he's going to put you into the. Book of life coming for the coming year, and it
13: says on Rosh Hashanah, he on the Shurash Hashanah, they it's decreed, and on Yom Kippur, it's sealed. And a lot of people, Judy, are are superstitious perhaps and frightened of that final seal. I am, yeah, so I do my best because you don't know, you don't know what's out there, of course. None of us do.
12: I I, I, I don't feel like that. I think after the horror of the Holocaust, I, I can't quite believe that.
13: I mean, it's many there, people came out of the Holocaust, including my parents, who got to this country in 1939, who were religious and kept nothing. And conversely, there were people who weren't religious who now keep everything. Yeah. yeah. Yes, so,
12: it's strange, isn't it? And so many of us yes, split. polarised. The
11: extraordinary thing about Yom Kippur is this fact, which is different from the Christians who who, who enjoy Christmas, Because all Jews, from the deeply religious to the completely irreligious, look upon it as a very special day. Mm. And I think that is the most interesting thing about it. And whether you spend the day outside (coughs) in the country meditating, or you spend the day sitting (coughs) at home not doing anything, or sit in synagogue, It doesn't really matter. No, you're spending the day of Yom Kippur...
13: It's a one day you you give back. Absolutely right. And I want to tell you something, Judy. In our shul, you abstract... um, What shul is that? Near Israel, not far away from here. Okay. Religion, uh, shul, atmosphere is abstract. You can't put your finger on atmosphere... But I'm telling you, there's a completely different atmosphere in our shul and Yom Kippur that there is on any other Shabbat morning. Out of interest,
1: what's it like on Yom Kippur Day rather than Kol Nidra? Is it is
13: packed or does it just get packed uh, for... It gets packed for Nila at the end of the day. Again. And gets packed for Yiska. And it gets packed for Yiska. Yeah, same as that Let's Arshul. talk about Yiska, Judy. It's, it's Again, it's a spiritual thing. It's not going to bring back the dead. Why do we do Yiska? We remember those who have gone... It's a spiritual thing. It's to remember, isn't it? Oh, uh, just, uh, because you just Why say, do people say Kaddish? Say like it's most people, remember.
12: I remember my parents all the time. So I don't need to be in a synagogue to remember them. I don't need that prompting, as I'm sure mo- any of us don't.
11: Mm. But Neila, I think, more than anything, which is sung at the end of Yom Kippur for the final service is the most beautiful service, because that, in a strange way, in it, the Almighty says, it's okay, I forgive you, you've talked about this for the past 25 hours. You've done your penance. You've done your penance, and it gives one a most wonderful, wonderful feeling of... Cleanliness, mm. if that, if that makes sense,
1: you know, yeah, it does
13: make no, sense, I, I, sense. I go along with you. And it gives you a, a release at the end of the yes. day. You've done, you've done it, and and the next day I'm actually trying to be pretty good the following <laughs> the following day, and that before you fall back into your old habits. But Yom Kippur does have a special atmosphere, as I said before, just like Christmas does, and perhaps Easter for the Catholics yeah. has a different atmosphere to any other Catholic Sunday.
11: Yeah, but Christmas is not about asking the Almighty, to make us do better and forgive us. All Christmases is celebrating mm. the birth of Jesus. It's not the
13: same Of course not. It's thing. not the same forgiveness. No. You're not
1: asking for forgiveness yeah. or anything like that. Yes.
13: It's an interesting debate. It is an
1: interesting debate. Yes, Good one. I'm afraid that we have to
11: leave it because our time oh. is up. But my thanks to our guests, founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carberitz, Fast World Judy, and founder <laughs> of Thank West you. End <laughs> Travel, David Siegel. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us and you can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews, or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Now, just ahead of our rabbinic thought for the week, Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips has a delicious recipe for breaking the fast. Denise, what have you got for us today?
14: This year, breaking the fast is a little bit different because... Yom Kippur falls Friday night so you want to make a dish that is easy and you can make in advance and this particular recipe ticks all the boxes for that it is a sea bass with pistachio crumbs you can prepare it and cook it in advance and serve it cold it only takes 10 minutes to prepare and 10 minutes to cook so from my point of view it's going to be a rush as usual this is the perfect recipe it serves 6 people you use 6 Fillets of sea bass and then you all you do is put a stuffing on that which is made with two slices of brown bread, 30 grams of cheddar cheese, 50 grams of pistachio nuts, two tablespoons of olive oil and salt and pepper to taste. So the stuffing ingredients, which is the bread, the cheese, put it in the food processor, then add some pistachio nuts, gently pulse together and season nicely and place the crumb mixture Evenly over each fillet, pressing down firmly and then bake that in the oven, 200 degrees centigrade, 400 degrees Fahrenheit or gas mark six for about 10 minutes and then just enjoy.
0: Oh, the torture starts of knowing that Yom Kippur is nearly upon us and yet we're talking about food. Thank you very much indeed to Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips there for that delicious sounding recipe. And if you would like more information on that recipe or indeed any of the others that Denise has to offer, you can always go to her website, which is jewishcookery.com. Plus, we've got a very mouth-watering photo of said sea bass on our Facebook page, which you can always go and have a look at as well if you want inspiration on how to create that recipe. Well, now it is time for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue.
15: We all know the official goals of the High Holy Days, and it offers time to consider that which will enhance our and others' lives. Jews have no trademark on simple practical wisdom, as our sages relate. If they tell you there is wisdom among the nations, believe them. So we hear of wellness and mindfulness all around us in society. But does Judaism have an approach to that? We do. You can find it in meditation and mysticism and especially in Musa. Musar is the practical wisdom, the informal actions that eternally defines the Jewish day to day. It makes the mundane holy. One of the aspects of Mus'av is contentment, histap kut. When our lives are full to overbrimming, when we are all consumed by the mundane without ever the moment to think why, we get stuck in time. It is on the occasion when we get to experience a, a live performance, a lecture, a piece of music or art or sport or of history writing itself that we find ourselves wholly present. There is an immediate sense of exhilaration and a far longer-lasting contentment, histap kut, the latter that can be revived through memory. For those of religion or belonging, or affiliating, as many of us will do, to a religious organisation, it is the moment that one is lost in prayer or lost in thought generally, in a collective that represents at once shared history, narrative, Belief structure, all that represent a realisation of identity and belonging. And the mundane can also provide contentment. It is being aware that picking up litter is the right thing to do, and once one is aware of the mitzvot concerning not ignoring or walking by something, it is a very Jewish action. When we refrain from spreading the latest gossip, even the words when they're desperate to surge out of our throats, that is Musa. When we smile to the person who is looking glum on the tube to work, speak to the elderly in a shop or the geek in the classroom, perhaps the only person to do so that day, that is Musa. Yom Kippur provides the perfect opportunity, yes to recall and seek to remedy the darker sides of our character, yet it also lends occasion to focus on what grants us histap kut, contentment, both at the holiest and eureka wow moments of our lives and also the simple appreciation of what makes us smile and brings positivity to other people's life.
0: Mm, It is extraordinary how this time of year always seems to make one stop and think is there anything that I can be doing just to make the world that little bit better Thank you very much indeed to Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue there for our thought for the week And that's all the Jewish views that we have time for Thank you very much indeed to all of our guests We spoke to Jeremy Newmark from the Jewish Labour Movement about the Labour Party conference Thank you very much to Rhiannon Jones and Abby Stacey from the Jewish Museum in Camden talking about Sukkot, Seeking Shelter. That's their latest exhibition. Also to Louise Jacobs, the incoming chair of the UJIA, just ahead of assuming her new position there. And we also mustn't forget to thank Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips for that delicious sounding recipe for breaking the fast. Thanks also to all of our other contributors and of course to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Tony Honigberg and Sue Greenberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find the facility to listen to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the Studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave, and on behalf of the whole team, we wish you Chag Sukkot Sumer, and we hope you'll join us next time here on The Jewish Views, where we continue our look through the best of 577. Goodbye.